Good morning, everyone. Glad you've joined us today. My guess is that already in this new year, you've been surprised by something. And that surprise is just God's way of reminding you and me that we really have no idea what the future holds. But we're talking about one item that we can be pretty sure that we will all face this year, and that is pressure in some form or another. We usually don't get to choose the type of pressure or the amount of pressure that we'll face, but what we do get to choose is the amount of peace that we're going to experience in the middle of that pressure. And that's the theme of this message series, Peace Under Pressure. It's based on the book of Philippians, a small book, four chapters in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. The theme of this book is found in chapter 4. Let me read these two verses for you. These are the theme verses, Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Last week, we began this series by talking about the zone of God's peace. It says here in this verse, the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Now, to guard is to keep someone or something within or inside the marked borders. And so to experience God's peace, we must keep our hearts and our minds inside the borders of his peace. And so we identify the three markers of God's zone of peace. And today we're going to consider the plan that exists behind the pressure that we face. We, we can put up with a great deal of pressure as long as we have a, an understanding that there's a reason for it, that there's a, a plan or a purpose behind the pressure. It's when pressure seems random or pointless that we tend to lose heart. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30, and in this passage, the word what is used several times to identify the plan of God behind the pressure that was in Paul's life and it also is in, in us when we face pressure. So we're going to look at three what's this morning. What number one is this, what has happened to you? What has happened to you in your past? Philippians 1, verse 12 says this, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, and then he goes on, we're going to pause right here, because as he was writing this to those in Philippi, they knew exactly what had happened to him because they had seen it happen to him. But since we weren't there, I want to take a little time to explain what Paul is talking about. What has happened to Paul? Now, you can read about this in greater detail in the book of Acts, particularly in chapter 16, about his trip to this city of Philippi. Paul arrived in Philippi, which is in what is now modern-day Greece, with Silas and a few others, and the reason they were there, just like they were in any city at that point, is they wanted to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, about how the offer of God is to forgive us and grant us eternal life with him in his son, Jesus Christ. And so they began to, to tell people, look for opportunities to strike up conversations. And there were a few individuals who responded positively to what they had to say, but it didn't take long before a great amount of opposition to their message uh, began to take place in the city. And they were eventually severely beaten and then thrown in the, the city jail. And that night, while sitting in jail, bloodied and in chains, they began to pray. And then they began to sing hymns. And in the middle of the night, God sent an earthquake. And this wasn't just a, a natural phenomenon. This earthquake not only jarred the prison doors open, but it also freed the shackles that uh, everyone was bound to. Everyone's hands and legs that were in shackles were suddenly freed. Now, earthquakes are not that precise. And if you're handcuffed, an earthquake isn't going to help you. And so this, this was a, a supernatural act of God to free them from this prison. 
Now, under Roman law, the penalty for letting a prisoner escape while under Roman guard, the penalty was death. And so as soon as the jailer, awakened by the earthquake, runs out and sees the condition of the prison, that all the doors are ajar, and then he discovers that the shackles have been loosened and everyone, he, um, he immediately pulls out his sword and begins to, to take his own life. The idea probably is that it would be much better to, to die at his own sword rather than die the death of crucifixion, which was the common way the Romans would execute someone. But Paul and Silas had convinced all of the prisoners to stay put. And so just before this jailer falls on his sword, Paul shouts out and tells the jailer that, that everyone is still in the prison. Everyone is there. And you can imagine the shock on the, the part of the jailer. Uh, no one would ever imagine this to be happening. I mean, all of a sudden you're in shackles and, and um, the prison doors are open, your shackles are loosed, and the, the natural next step would be you run for your life. You try to put as much distance between you and that prison as possible. But they'd all stayed put. And so he was stunned by this. When he discovered that Paul was the one who had convinced everyone to stay, he, he suddenly took more of an interest in, now, what was it you were saying, Paul, about this man named Jesus, and what did he do? And so Paul shares the story of Jesus with him. And as a result, he and his entire family, they all become believers. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the kind of thing that would happen from city to city. Not this exact thing, but this kind of thing. Paul and Silas and the others would would, would arrive at a city, and, and they would proclaim the good news of Jesus. And in some cities... The response was more peaceful than in this one. In some cities, it was actually more violent than in this one. But finally, after having moved through many cities and seeing many churches begin and started, Paul is uh, finally sent to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. And Caesar was the one who would decide whether Paul would live or die for proclaiming the news of Jesus Christ. And it's from that prison cell in Rome that Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi. That's why it's called the book of Philippians. It's written to the church in Philippi. Now, to the casual observer, what has happened to Paul, whether it was in the specific city of Philippi or if you read the entire story of what happened to Paul in the book of Acts, by pretty much anyone's accounting, what had happened to Paul was not good. Paul was often beaten. He was often imprisoned. He was often ridiculed. Uh, He was shipwrecked. He went hungry. All kinds of horrible things had happened to Paul. And so you would look at Paul's life and you say, what, what happened to you is, is not good. You're not having a good life. But that's not the way Paul sees it. Let me complete the sentence now in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul says, what's happened to me has served a larger purpose. And so whatever happened to Paul is the same thing that whatever happens to you, it, it serves a larger purpose in God's plan. See, what happens to you is not random. It's not random. Pressure doesn't just happen. It, it appears that way sometimes. It may look like that, but it's, it's actually God at work in your life and through your life, just like it was for Paul. There is a plan behind the pressure that you are facing, that we're all facing at this point. Now, in the moment, it's often impossible or, or very difficult to see what that plan exactly is. But if you look back, every once in a while, you you can see pieces of the plan coming together. It's impossible to see, usually in the moment, and especially as you look forward. But when you turn around and look back, you you can begin to see God's plan emerge from the fog. And so Paul is is in jail now, in Rome, and he's looking back kind of over his tour of the cities and the jails of the Roman Empire. And now he's sitting in prison in Rome, and he's beginning to see 
pieces of God's brilliant plan as it applied to his own life and the pressure that he was under, he's beginning to see those pieces fall into place. And he sees particularly that what, what God has been doing has been advancing the gospel. And he identifies at least two particular ways that God has used what has happened to Paul to advance the gospel. Philippians 1, verses 13 through 14, he goes on and says, As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters, these are fellow Christians, have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So Paul says, you would think that my attempt to help people understand who Jesus is has, has been put to a, a stop because I've now been imprisoned. I'm in jail awaiting trial to find out whether I'll live or die. But I'm seeing that what God is doing is he's advancing the gospel through what has happened to me. And he sees it in two particular ways. First of all, he recognizes that those who are guarding him, well, they've all, they all know that he's in chains for Christ. What that means is Paul has taken the opportunity because he would be in prison, not just to the wall, he would be chained to a, another Roman guard. And there would be a rotation. And, and he's taken the opportunity to help these Roman guards understand why he's in prison. He's told them the truth and the story about Jesus Christ. Now, those who guarded prisoners awaiting trial before Caesar were the elite of the Roman legion. Whenever the legions would come back, they, they, would, they would take the cream of the crop and they would put them in the palace guard and they would serve as a rotation before they went back out on another tour of duty. And all of these individuals who were chained to Paul were either present or future day leaders of the Roman Empire, leaders who would travel the entire world, the empire at that point, with the Roman legion. Now, you could never have gathered an audience with a group like this. There was no mechanism in the Roman Empire at that point to, to really gather all throughout, throughout the world to have a tour of all of them come together and, and gather an audience. You, you could never have done that. And even if you did, the moment you would start talking about Jesus Christ, they would have silenced you or they would have walked out or most likely they would have arrested you or even killed you. But now, one by one, they all had to be chained to Paul for four hours each. And as they were chained to Paul... Paul, we don't know how much he talked, but he talked away. And they couldn't get away from him. They were chained to him. That was their duty. And Paul begins to see this, and, and you can see the brilliance of this plan. Could you have thought of a better plan to get the top leaders, present and future, in the Roman uh, legion to, who would travel the world to sit before Paul and listen to a, a telling of the story of Jesus? I, I, I can't imagine a more brilliant plan. So Paul says, now, my life is not really that great. I'm in prison. But God has used this to advance the gospel. See, whatever happens to you is, is not random. There's a purpose behind it. That's not the only thing that's happened in this particular situation. Paul says the vacuum of leadership that's now been caused by my absence, my arrest, and my imprisonment has actually motivated Christ followers to step up and share the gospel just like I was doing. I mean, he says this, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You see, before Paul was imprisoned in Rome and on trial for his life, it would have been very easy for other Christ followers to say, well, Paul's just, he's just knocking it out of the park. I mean, he's doing such a great job. He's got so much courage. I, I, think, I think I'm okay just kind of doing what I'm doing. But now that Paul was sidelined, now that he was in prison, there, there kind of became this general awareness, you know what, if, if we don't say anything, if we don't tell the people in our life anything, 
nothing's going to happen. And beyond that, there are some individuals that decide, you know what, I, I need to kind of start going from city to city in my region and start telling people the story of Jesus, just like Paul did. And Paul says, you know, if I hadn't been put in prison, all kinds of people probably would have been comfortable with just not ever stepping forward and saying anything about Christ. But now that I'm sidelined, in that vacuum, people are stepping up to say something. You know, when the retina in my left eye detached uh, just a couple days before Christmas Eve, I mentioned a little bit more about this last Sunday. Uh, in addition to all the, the medical stuff and the personal stuff, one of my first thoughts was, oh, no, what are we going to do for Christmas Eve? I mean, Christmas Eve is, you know, one of my favorite services. It's a big service here. And, um, you know, I've done Christmas Eve for 25 years. And so my first thought was, how could Seabreeze do Christmas Eve without me? <laughs> and the answer is, just fine. In fact, we had more people attend that Christmas Eve than ever before, so <laughs> I see a new plan forming. <laughs> Not really, but you know, I mean, through, through that, one of the things that, that, uh, that I was seeing is that, you know, God motivated all kinds of people to step up and help out in different ways, particularly if you were here for Christmas Eve, Matt, our youth pastor, stepped up here on stage and, and spoke on my behalf in my stead. And, and the, the truth is, I, I, I think I've got many more decades here, but eventually I'm going to be gone, and, and the gospel of Jesus needs to advance through this church and in this community long after I'm here. And one of the exciting things that's happening at Seabreeze is that God is bringing us a, a lot of younger staff. That wasn't our plan, but as we look to fill staff needs and address different things, these were one by one the most qualified people that we, we brought. And and so now we've got the future generation, and God, I guess, decided Christmas Eve that my training track was a little bit slow, and so he wanted to speed some things up, <laughs> and Matt had to step up, some other people had to step up. Now, I don't know all of what God was doing, but that's one thing already I've seen. You know, that, that was a good thing. A lot of people had to step up in many different ways, on staff and, and beyond, people who are not on staff. So what happens to you is not random. And that's just, pressure just doesn't descend and then lift for no purpose at all. God has a purpose behind it. The second idea in this, this what is what happens to you is not the point. This is very hard for us to accept. What happens to you is not the point. Paul says it this way, what has happened to me has actually, and here's the word that tells you it's not the point, served. What's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. There's something bigger going on in the middle of your life and my life, in the middle of the pressure we face, than just what's happening to us. There's a bigger purpose. What happened to Paul was secondary. What, what is primary, Paul says in life, is that the, the gospel is advanced, that more and more people hear about it and decide to put their faith in Jesus. Because without the gospel, without Jesus Christ, Scripture is very clear, people will spend eternity apart from God. And our natural tendency is to think that, that whatever happens to us is kind of about us. It's to serve us. But we're not the point. Now, now get, don't get me wrong. God loves us. He loves you. And he doesn't just bring pressure just to torture you. But, but he is giving all of us the opportunity to serve a larger purpose. He has not designed the universe and the flow of eternity to orbit around us. We get a chance to serve his bigger purpose, and we're not the point. So, so what is it that has happened to you? What happened to you in 2015, or what's still happening to you that's, that, that's bringing pressure? What kind of pressure has invaded your life? 
You, you are not the victim of just a random happenstance. I mean, it may look like that. It, it caught you completely by surprise, maybe. But it's happening for a reason. Now, I don't know the details of all that God has planned to do through that pressure that you're facing, but I do know the theme. And the theme is this. God is using the pressure to advance the gospel in your life and then through your life. That's, that's the point. That's the purpose behind the pressure. And that brings us to the second what. First, what has happened to you? Second what is what really matters to you? What really matters to you? Pressure has a way of revealing what really matters most to us. Listen to the next verses, Philippians 1, 15 through 18. In the middle of this vacuum, this is what happened. Paul says, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. So some of the people that stepped up didn't really like Paul, and they used it to cause Paul problems. But others, they had a real good heart for Paul, and they did it with goodwill. The latter do so out of love. They really love me. Knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But here's the key phrase. But what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. So some of those who stepped up in Paul's absence did it out of a good heart. But others saw it as an opportunity to, to stir up trouble for him while he was in jail, to, to speak poorly of him, to cause, him, cause his reputation to be misaligned. And Paul's response was, what does it matter? Now, he's not saying, I don't care. What he's saying is that in comparison to the important thing, which is the good news of Jesus getting out there, in comparison to that, what people think of me, just, it's just not that important. It doesn't matter. Now, here's the thing. is we, we all carry inside of our hearts, on the inside, a list of what really matters most to us. The list goes from the most important thing in our hearts down to the least important thing. It's a very extensive list, and it's in a very exacting order. Now, this list is invisible. What that means is we often can be pretty unclear about the order of our own list. Now, if we're asked, we, we, can, we can say this is number one and two and three and four, and maybe I'm fuzzy here and we get down here, but we, we can maybe come up with a list. But often what's true is the real list is not exactly lined up with the list that we think should be the list or we profess to be the list because it's invisible. But what pressure does is pressure pushes this list to the surface. It brings the invisible list out of the open. It, in a sense, it publishes our list and reveals to us and to those close to us what really, really matters most to us. You put me under pressure, I'm going to leak my list. Same thing with you. Put you under pressure, you're going to leak the list of what's really important and what's not that important to you. And to be honest, that publishing is not always a pretty sight. What I've found is that often what I've said to be most important is not as high up as I thought it was. And the pressure reveals that. Well, what, what is, according to Paul here, what is the most important thing? What should be at the top of every one of our lists who follow Jesus Christ? The number one thing on a list should be that Christ is preached. That's the most important thing. The number one thing in life is that the good news of Jesus is advanced. Why is that number one? Well, simply, really out of math. 
I mean, everything else that can happen to us in this life can only affect this life. But what people decide about Jesus will affect them forever. And just with a sheer volume of time, that makes that much more important. No matter what happens in this life, no matter how bad it gets, it's only going to last for decades. But you see, what a person decides about Jesus, well, that'll affect all of eternity. And so that's got to be number one. That's the most important thing. You know, I am, personally, I'm convinced that this is true. I'm convinced that people finding out about Jesus Christ is the most important thing of all. But let me just be honest with you. You put me under the pressure, say, like of Paul, of, of people not liking me or people misaligning me and saying negative things about me and half-truths and lies about me. And I'll tell you the truth. I tend to be more upset about that than the fact that many people in our community do not know Jesus Christ. And you know what that does? That, that leaks my list. And oftentimes what people think of me is, I mean, this is embarrassing, but it's more important than what people think of Jesus. And that, that's, it, it needs to switch. You see, I, I tend to, oh yeah, this is true, but, but put me under pressure, and this is what's really true. And that's, that's the way we all are. So God uses pressure over and over again to, to challenge our list. Now, a good way to get clarity on what really is important is to ask yourself, when you're in a, in a moment of pressure or in a moment of fear, ask yourself, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? And if you keep following the line, well, this could happen, you could lose your job, and then you lose your house, and then you, you couldn't pay for groceries. And you keep going down the line, but just keep asking, well, what's, is that the worst that could happen? What's the real worst? And you'll come to the final conclusion that, well, I guess the worst thing that can happen is I could die. I mean, that, that's the worst thing that's going to happen to you today is you're going to die. And Paul uses this line of thinking, uh, this logic, to identify why Jesus really is the most important. Listen to what he says in verses 20 through 26. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. What he's talking about is when I stand before Caesar, I'm not going to wimp out but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. See, Paul, really, he's in jail, and it's very clear to him. What's the worst that could happen? Well, I could get executed. That's very clear to him. But then he says this, for me to live is Christ. And to die, well, that's, that's a promotion. That's actually gain. And then he says, so if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I kind of want to say, Paul, I don't think you get a choice, but okay. But he's, he's, he's wrestling with this in his mind. What, what's, what's better? What shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to part and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He's speaking now to the Christians in Philippi. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. You know, I want to help you progress, and if I die, I know it's going to cause you grief. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So Paul's future options are very clear. Either he's going to live or he's going to die. And he's actually torn between which one he'd prefer. This is a fascinating debate in his own mind. The plus for staying alive, he says, is fruitful labor. What he's saying is, if I get some more years, then all of those years I get to spend doing things that will result in in fruit that will last for eternity, fruitful labor for Christ. 
You see, however many years God gives you, that, that's the only window of time you will get for all of eternity to do something in, the, in this life that can last for eternity. Paul says, you know, I might want to take a few, more, a few more efforts, a few more years on that one. I don't, I don't want to coast my way to the end. I, I, I want to I use however many years I've got to, to, to come up with fruit that lasts forever. But Paul says, that's the plus of being able to stay here. Is I, get to, I get to work for God a little longer in this life. But on the other hand, he says, now if I die, well, I get to see Jesus Christ. So this is why he says, for me to live is Christ. I mean, that's the per- if I'm going to be alive, I'm not just going to dink around. I'm not just going to make this all about me. I'm going to live for Christ. And that's a good thing. But you know, for me to die, well, that's actually a better thing. So I says his personal preference is death. This is amazing. He says, I desire to part and be with Christ, which is better by far. But then he kind of turns and he realizes, but you know, that's kind of selfish. He says, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Now, these verses only make sense if what really matters most is eternity. Now, if that's true, then what really matters most in this life is Christ, to follow him and to help others find him. That's, everything else is secondary. I mean, we've got to do all kinds of other things, but that's, that's secondary. It's not primary. The problem we have is this. All we've known is this life. We have no experience in eternity. So eternity is just kind of a, an idea or a theory in our minds. It's, it's not real to us because we've never seen it. If we could just spend five minutes, we might be convinced, you know what? That really is what matters. But all we've seen is this life. And so it's very easy for us, especially as the years go by, to, get this, to decide, you know, what I really need is this. Or what would really make life great was this. And, and begin to move those things up and to the very top of our list in our heart. And when we do that, God brings pressure into our life to show us this life is, is, is coming to an end. It is temporary. And what matters most to us now, we won't even be able to remember much of it. It's just not that important. The things that, that we've been worried about, the things that we've laid awake at night you know, concerned about, the things that we wake up in the morning thinking about, are just not going to matter in the scope of all eternity. And God uses pressure to, to remind us of that. You know, one of the top reasons that we tend to not have peace and then little pressure is this. We have the wrong thing at the top of our list. And that's why God brings pressure, and we just don't have peace, because we will not move that thing down. And that brings us to the last what. Actually, it's a whatever. Whatever happens to you. Whatever, whatever happens to you in the future. We don't know what the future holds, but whatever happens to you, you can be ready for it. You can be ready for anything. Paul tells us how, verses 7, 27, 28. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, when I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So if, if you accept that whatever happens to you is not about you, but it's about advancing the gospel, and if... Living for Christ really is at the top of your list, and death really is a promotion, then you can be at peace 
no matter what happens in your life. But if you're like me, this won't come that easy, this perspective. That's because what actually tends to happen in real life is that when the pressure comes, when it arrives, all of our best intentions and all of our best thoughts go out the window and we start freaking out. That's really what happens. I mean, you, you can sit here and say, that's really true. But I promise you, when the pressure comes, you, the tendency is going to be to start freaking out. I mean, real pressure. You'll start freaking out. It's kind of like this graphic that we have for this series. I mean, you're, you know, when, when, the, when the vice grip of life begins to put the pressure on, we, we start cracking like this word peace. We just, we start freaking out. That, that's just what happens to us. And what you need to understand is this. You cannot think or feel your way to peace. You have to conduct your way to peace. You have to make choices of peace. And that brings us to the subpoint: conduct your way to peace. So whatever happens to you, conduct your way to peace. Do what leads to peace. Now, you may not feel at peace at all. You may be freaking out on the inside, but you can conduct yourselves, as Paul says, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that look like? Well, there's there several aspects of this, but one of the key things that Paul's talking about here it looks like is it looks a whole lot like this. It looks like a group of Christ followers getting together to stand firm in one spirit for the faith. That's what it looks like. It looks like this. I mean, you, you conducted yourself this morning to get here. A lot of other people didn't. You don't need to feel better about them. They just didn't, and you did. This is a conduct. Why did you do this? Well, there's probably many different reasons. You see, what's, what's happened to all of us in the course, we, we were just here a week ago, last Sunday. Why are you back? I'm glad you're here, but why? Isn't that a little excessive? I mean, every single week? I know some of you are thinking, yeah, see, it's a little excessive. <laughs> now, the reason you're back is because, you know what happened this last week? You faced some pressure. Now, this last week may have been a lot of pressure. It may just be minor pressure. But every one of us, we're, we're knocked down just a little bit. Some of us are on our backs. We had so much pressure this week. Others are just kind of hunched over because the pressure's kind of gotten us down a little bit. And what we're doing here is we're gathering here to stand back up with the help of the Holy Spirit, stand back up in the faith. And to shore up our footing, to, to get our feet braced for it. Because you know what comes tomorrow? The next week, right? I mean, it'll actually start, well, it's starting, it, you know, it'll happen this afternoon. And there's going to be pressure this next week. So, and those of you that are gathering this week in growth groups, you are conducting yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. What you're saying is, I can't do this alone. You, you can't stand up alone. Trusting God under pressure takes a lot of striving. What's the word there? Together as one for the faith of the gospel. You and Jesus can't stand alone. You're designed to stand together as one for the faith of the gospel. If you try to handle pressure alone, you know what's going to happen? Fear. Fear will take over, and your peace will crumble, and after your peace crumbles, your life will begin to crumble. So conduct is something that's, that's done with great regularity. You just do this week after week after week after week. You conduct yourself in a manner worthy, no matter how much peace you feel or not. You just conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then secondly, whatever happens to you, expect the pressure to continue. Isn't that great news? 
Now, the good news is Jesus, because we need it, because the pressure will continue. Three weeks before the end of, the, of last year, my wife and I went out for dinner to celebrate the end of 2015. We were a little early, but we were ready for 2015 to be done. As I'd mentioned last Sunday, I'd already had three, uh, four eye surgeries at that point. I'm losing track. Had four eye surgeries at that point. And we, we went out primarily to celebrate God's uh, protection for me and the fact that uh, I could see. I was very grateful uh, for my sight. But honestly, there was something else in my heart behind this celebration. I was drawing a kind of line in the medical sand, and I was saying to God, no more. <laughs> and in my mind, if you have steak, that ratifies any contract. So if you, if you, if you, if you come to an agreement over steak, that's, that's solid. That's secure. That's good. But apparently God thinks a little differently, which is common. And um, I'm sure God saw my heart and said, all right. Within less than a week, you know, the retina detached in my other eye, and I had surgery number five. Apparently, steak isn't the key <laughs> to getting God on board with my plans. One of the reasons, and I want you to hear this, one of the reasons it was so hard for me to find peace in that pressure of that last surgery is that it was the exact opposite of what I expected. I mean, I was expecting, I, I really thought, it's got to be done, right? I mean, this is ridiculous. Can't, can't be anymore. And so I, I was completely, I, I, my footing was, I was not braced at all for anything like this. And it really sent me for a loop personally. You see, we, we often struggle to find peace under pressure because we're not expecting pressure. Paul says, no, you, you need to expect it. In this life, you need to expect it. This is what he says, the last two verses, 29 and 30. He says, for it has been granted to you on behalf, so granted means it's a gift. This has been given. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, to hear it, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The two biggest gifts that we can be given in this life are these. Number one, the gift of belief in Christ. You know, when God helps open up our eyes and our hearts so that we can see that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, and that that without him we would have no hope of ever standing before God because of our sin, and, and we decide to trust his gift and, and, and put our faith in him and live our life for him, that, well, that's, that's a gift that will change you forever. When God grants that, when God allows that to happen and helps you get to that point, for all of eternity we'll be falling on our knees in just gratitude for that. The second gift is we get to suffer for Christ. Gift number one, we get to believe in him. Gift number two, we get to suffer for Christ. Lots of people are standing in line one to get gift number one. Not many people line up in line number two. See, the first gift is so amazing because it has the power to change us forever. But you know what's amazing about the second gift? The second gift has the power to change not only us forever, but the people around us forever. That's because no one is ever drawn to look up when life is good. No one is ever forced to reconsider the, the list of what's really important to them when their current list is just humming along, working fine. No one can see Christ in you until the pressure goes up. So God, you can just expect it. Because the gospel advancing is, well, there's nothing more important. And Paul goes on to say, you're going, you're going now through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. What's he saying? Paul's saying, 
my life's not getting any easier, and I've noticed that your life isn't easier either. We're still struggling. Now, that doesn't fit with what we expect out of life. That, that's, not, that's not the narrative that we have in this country, is it? And the idea in this country is that things just get better and better and better, and then we retire with just loads of money, and we just have the time of our life, and then we just kind of begin to glow, and we are suddenly with Jesus face to face. That's kind of the expectation we have. And whenever it doesn't work out that way, we're just as shocked as we can be because that's the way we think it should be. You know, with all of my eye problems this last year, you know the number one question I got? And I really appreciate this question because everyone who asks it really cares about me. And actually, this was the number one question I had about myself most days. The question is this, are you better? <laughs> now, if I was better, that, of course, was very easy to answer, just simply, yes. But if I was not better, you know what's, what was strange? I found myself still wanting to say that I was better. You know why? Nobody wants to hear that things are worse. I mean, I, I, I could play it on my mind. So are you better? And if I said no, it'd be like, oh, okay, well, thanks. Have a good day. You know, it's like, uh, I mean, what do you say? It's like, oh, no, now I got it. It's a longer conversation at least. And people don't know what to say. It's like, oh, uh, and, you know, and so, so I found myself eventually saying I'm getting a little better every day. And the way I justified that is my own mind. I thought, well, if you measure it at a molecular level, I'm sure some molecule has moved in the direction of health. That, that's got to be true. I just can't see it. Because, you know, everybody, I mean, usually when people ask that, it's like, you're better, right? I mean, please don't, don't tell me that you're still struggling. But what does Paul say here? Well, you're going through the same struggle you saw ahead, and now here I still have. Things are not getting better. So let me just tell you the truth. My eyes are worse than they were before five eye surgeries. That makes sense, wouldn't it? They're worse. I mean, I, I can see, and I can see well. I can see well enough, and I can, I can see good. But they're worse, and there's parts of it that, you know, I don't know if it's ever going to get better. And I've had to wrestle with that. And, th- and that's okay. You know why? I only need these things for a few more decades. That's all I need them for. And what has happened to me can and actually has served to advance the gospel. And that's what really matters most. And that's what matters most in your life. It's already happened in your life and it can continue. So what has happened to you? It's not random. It's not about you. It's to get your list lined up right and to give you a chance to advance the gospel in your life and through your life. Let me give you some some next steps to take this week as we apply this message. The first is I would encourage you to memorize the first verse that we talked about today, Philippians 1, 12. This has been a great verse for me, kind of a a centering reminder. Oh, yeah, this is what life is about verse. Paul says, "I, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. I encourage you to memorize that verse this week. Number two, I encourage you to do the growth group homework. Growth group homework is found on the inside. This is your message insert. And on the inside, there's a series of questions. If you're in a growth group, definitely do this homework. But even if you are not in a growth group, I would encourage you still to go through this. A number of great questions in here. We're going to look a little bit at the life of Peter, some of the pressure that he faced, and, and some of the lessons out of that. I think it's going to be a great study for you. So I encourage you to do the homework uh, for the growth groups this week. And again, if, if you're not in a growth group, uh, this is the first week of homework, so go ahead and sign up today. Go out to the growth group table, sign up, jump right in, and take advantage of that.
And lastly, I would encourage you to read the book of Philippians. This is what I'm going to encourage you to do each week. It's only four chapters, won't take you long, but over the course of this week, read the entire book. I'd love for you to get very familiar with this book by the time uh, we're done with this series. So let's pray together. Father, we, um, we just admit that um, we live under the illusion that um, what happens to us is not to serve anything other than us. And yet the, the truth is that we are given the great privilege to have particular pressure in our life serve to advance the gospel, to serve your purposes. And Father, you know that um, people discovering who your son is and the offer of the mercy that you've offered through him is, well, it's the top thing in life. There's just nothing more important. And so I just, I pray that you would, you would realign us. We spend our weeks in a culture and watching um, things that, that just pound into our hearts that almost everything else is more important. And that means that eternity is just going to be an unbelievable shock. So I pray that you would realign our hearts with however many days or years or decades you've given us that for us to live would be Christ, not, not something else at the top but you. And so that death really would be gain, not a loss. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.